welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Duke, and I am so excited to be back for another edition of Rising Fridays along with Jessica Burbank. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Happy Friday. It's good to be back in action with you. Absolutely. Last night, Governors Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom faced off in a Fox News debate where they faced off mano e mano after months of back and forth. Last night's biggest moment came when Newsom dropped this singer during his opening statement. Let's watch. And there are profound differences tonight, and I look forward to engaging them. But there's one thing in closing that we have in common is neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024. Governor, oh my um, God. <laughs> great opening statement. Later, DeSantis dragged the California governor over his handling of the state's homelessness problem. Well, I'm looking at total time. Governor DeSantis, yeah, look, about two this, minutes. This, 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 he is, needs it. this is a map of San Francisco. There's a lot of plots on that. You may be asking, what is that plotting? Well, this is an app where they plot the human feces that are found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country's ever had. Human feces is now a, a fact of life, except when a communist dictator comes to town. Then they cleaned up the streets. They lined the streets with Chinese flags. The two governors, of course, discussed the migrant crisis. I, I'm, the one that, I'm the only guy here that's a border state governor. You're trolling folks and trying to find migrants to play political games to try to get some news and attention so you can out-Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. And of course, the two later went head-to-head -head regarding their state's COVID policies and their record handling the pandemic. On a per capita age-adjusted basis, California and Florida, basically the same. Now, why is that important? Because Gavin Newsom did huge damage to people in California. He ruined livelihoods. We reopened the, the, the state very quickly. We saved thousands of jobs. We saved hundreds of th hundred thousands of jobs, thousands of businesses. We had our kids in school. He had the kids locked out of school because of the teachers' union. That is having a generational impact. California has one of the lowest literacy rates in the country. In the most recent NAEP exam, Florida came in number three for fourth grade reading. California was far, far behind. So you should apologize for not getting your kids in <laughs> well, school. You, Why didn't you get the kids in school in the summer of 2020 like we did? The only you person, bowed to the teachers' the only union. Person, you didn't do the job you should John, have done. All right, the only person, quick, quick, the only person right, one at a time, quick answer is Ron DeSantis for the tens of thousands of lives that died unnecessarily because he played, played to the fringe of his party. The one thing I liked out of this debate, Amber, is that Gavin Newsom said, neither of us are going to be the candidate in 2024. That's the one thing. <laughs> I know, that was actually great. <laughs> what are we doing, boys? Why are we debating? 2028? Is that what this is about? Let's stay on the topic of COVID for a second. I think it's, it's kind of rich hearing DeSantis say this because I remember moving to Florida at the very beginning of COVID. I stayed there for two months. And while every other state was open, restaurants were open, it was very easy to cross the border. There were no checks until I got to Florida. And then there were all of these white tents. They took my temperature through the window of the car. I had to fill out forms to promise that I didn't have COVID. It was a whole ordeal, very different from any other state. And most businesses were actually shut down. So I think it's good that Newsom points out that like, hey, Ron DeSantis, you are wearing a mask, you're vaccinated, you followed Fauci, even though you claim to hate him. 
And then later on, Trump lying, or not Trump, DeSantis, lying about the COVID deaths uh, in the state of Florida. He's still facing legal action for this. The auditor found that he was underreporting COVID deaths by a significant amount on some days, saying there were none when there were 47 that day. But the data produced by the health department was not accurate. And so this legal action is going well into 2026. So I don't know if COVID is what Ron DeSantis really wants to be talking about here. Nevertheless, the boys are having fun debating, you know, years and years, five years in advance of 2028. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your point that in the beginning, Florida was locked down maybe just as much as other states. I would say that there's a fundamental difference, though, between saying that travelers from out of state should take their temperature versus keeping kids out of school for a year. I mean, one is obviously way worse than the other. The New York Times just published an article two weeks ago talking about the ramifications of keeping kids out of school, whether it's learning loss, mental health issues. There's been a rise in anxiety and depression among younger people. And so I just don't think those two things are comparable when it comes to a COVID restriction. Um, and I'm not sure what the audit is on the COVID deaths being underreported in Florida. My understanding was that that was from a whistleblower who turned out to not be accurate, but I'll have to look into that and see what exactly you're talking about there. The most recent article I can find on that is from the summer of 2022. Another part of this debate that was interesting was, of course, the fact that more Californians are leaving the state on, on, you know, it's a net negative migration out of California into Florida and other states like Texas. And Gavin Newsom was asked repeatedly why he thought that was happening, and he never answered the question. He just kept turning to attack Governor DeSantis. And sure, that's a fine tactic to have during a debate. People do it all the time. But when you're asked three times why people are leaving your state in droves and you don't have any explanation, that doesn't seem to bode well for your ability to defend your record. Yeah, anytime there's a non-answer, you pretty much get the answer. It's that Gavin Newsom doesn't want to do much about the rising price of housing in California, which I would credit to be the major reason people are leaving California. But this is an economy that is, what, uh, $39 billion, uh, it's, or $3.9 trillion, rather. Uh, it's a huge economy. Sorry, $39.24, uh, or no, $3.59 is the total GDP annually in California. Florida has an economy that's less than half of that at $1.38 trillion. So Gavin Newsom is operating in a very different state. The size uh, it's bigger than many small countries, quite frankly. It's a very tough state to be the governor of. Ron DeSantis having a state with an economy that's less than half of that size and a smaller population as well. Uh, you know, he's got a very different state to govern. I don't know if we can compare apples to apples when we talk about California and Florida. It's always going to be comparing apples to oranges here. But there are a few points in this debate where I think things that were really important ended up up. You have, you know, Gavin Newsom talking about how Ron DeSantis demeans people, even with his COVID policy. As soon as the health department got data that the virus was disproportionately affecting working class people, people that had to sell coffees and work in warehouses and interact with other people on a daily basis, work that my parents do, he decided to open the state up which signals to me that he finds working class people relatively expendable. 
he talked about Ron DeSantis demeaning the LGBTQ community. He says, you know, you don't need to demean and, and humiliate people, Ron. You don't need to talk about people in this way. I think that's an important conversation to have because those are not qualities that I associate with a leader. You should be able to be an effective leader without having to say bad things about people. And Ron DeSantis, in my view, seems kind of childish in that respect. So I'm glad that that came up. What were some of the examples that you would give of DeSantis demeaning LGBTQ people? I think his push for this bill in schools was a huge example of this to equate, you know, people dressing in drag as people who are perverted, who are trying to groom children. That's an awful thing to say about someone uh, to talk about the LGBTQ plus community in that way. I think is detrimental, especially if people are not fully aware of where that comes from, that there could be some data, that that could be legitimate, that categorizing people who do drag, who dress up for fun and dance around are somehow the same people that are grooming children is just, I think, a really bad way to categorize a population of people. The drag bill was related to drag performers who were doing it in front of children, though. And drag is necessarily an over-exaggerated, sexualized version of femininity. These drag performers do dress scantily clad. They have the very exaggerated makeup. And so, I, you know, I have uh, quite a few friends in the LGBTQ community who have a problem with drag performances taking place in public libraries or otherwise in front of children. And so I think there's a fundamental difference between saying all drag performers are groomers versus, yes, people who dance provocatively in front of children are behaving inappropriately. And on the parental rights and education bill. I think there are NFL games where there sorry. are cheerleaders that are dancing in a sexualized way, wearing barely any clothing. And it's like welcome that children go to those games. I feel like that's the same thing. I don't think that's the same thing at all. But I would also say that on the parental rights and education bill, that what that bill is talking about is not in any way demeaning LGBTQ people. It's saying that between kindergarten and third grade, you should have developmentally appropriate conversations with those kids. And in Florida, it was found that 65 to 70% of voters agreed with the contents of that bill once they read it. The only time that they opposed the bill was when they read lies in the media about it, calling it the don't say gay bill. I don't think it's appropriate to call someone a groomer of children if they dance in front of them. I mean, it's the parents' decision to take them to the show. Is it also grooming when cheerleaders are dancing in, you know, basically a bra and underwear at an NFL game or an NBA game? To me, it's not that different. You're dancing the to cheerleaders, music. The cheerleaders in the NFL have specific standards clothes. that... They actually have specific standards for NFL cheerleaders, such that their dancing is not overly provocative. And they actually fire cheerleaders who go out of their way to behave in a sexual manner during their job. And they're actually not even allowed to post certain content on social media that could be deemed unprofessional because of the fact that they are performing in a public setting. I've been to plenty of drag shows that are not sexual. There's way more sexual dancing at many NBA and NFL games than at many drag shows. And at the end of the day, I think someone like Ron DeSantis, who wants to give parents more rights, shouldn't feel like it's his job to parent people's kids if they want to bring their kids to a drag show. Same as, you know, the parents of kids who have a favorite football team are going to go to the game and they might see cheerleaders dancing and they might have a conversation about the over-sexualization of women's bodies. And that would be 
very good and healthy. But I think that's a decision that parents can very easily make. Ron DeSantis doesn't need to make the LGBTQ community seem like child groomers, uh, you know, to, to parent the children of his state. That's not his job as governor. His job is to make good pandemic policy, which he didn't do. Florida had an exorbitant amount of deaths, which he lied about. Ron DeSantis could do a lot more for Florida's economy. Now we have insurance companies leaving for farmers and agricultural insurance. Um, Ron DeSantis hasn't done much to reverse that trend. You have farmers insurance leaving the state entirely, not wanting to operate there. What does that mean for food access in Florida and the price working people pay in food? I think there's just a lot more serious policy problems he should be focusing on as a leader rather than focusing on, you know, rhetoric and culture wars that I don't think is the job of a governor. Florida had the same COVID outcome in terms of deaths by population as California, despite having a much older population, which I think speaks to the success of his policies, even though they were deemed not restrictive enough by the public health bureaucracy. Unfortunately, we we're don't actually have all of the COVID data from Florida yet. That's what's going to come out from the appellate judge's case into 2024. Right. But the audit that you're talking about found that all states had the same issue with early COVID reporting because they didn't have the databases set up in order to track this kind of data. And so you could argue perhaps that for the first two months, maybe people were making decisions based on incomplete information. But that's not a Florida exclusive problem. That was a national problem. Well, the whistleblower claimed accurately after leaving the department that they were not reporting data. If you're in, talking about Rebecca Jones, she didn't have access. She didn't even have access to the data that she was talking about. She inflated her position, and her case was struck down by a judge. She's separate from this audit you're talking about. The initial whistleblower that talked about it, she ended up being the person who led to an audit happening. The result of that audit was that there was a $152,000 settlement covering the legal fees of the lawsuit of this audit. They found that the Florida numbers were not accurate. Now they're facing additional legal action where the recourse is that they're going to have to continue releasing the data so that there is accurate data on Florida's COVID deaths because what was found to be happening in the hospitals, the deaths were being uh, underreported by the, the Florida Department of Health. So Ron DeSantis is facing legal action well into the next uh, few years here, the next three years here for what happened under his watch during COVID. This was reported extensively by the Miami Herald, but it didn't really get picked up by national news as much as I really think it should have been in the way that Andrew Cuomo's case was. Yeah, I mean, it's covered in the New York Times, and their explanation of it was that there was some mismatch in the early days of the COVID pandemic in Florida between what was on the uh, public dashboard versus what was being reported by the Florida Department of Health, and that those issues were resolved by late summer. But we'll certainly keep tracking the case and see if it turns out that Ron DeSantis faces some consequences for his alleged lies. We're going to have to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. History was made today in the House of Representatives as besieged New York Congressman George Santos got the boot. The resolution, which needed a two-thirds majority vote, passed as 311 members, including 105 Republicans, voted to expel Santos. 114 members voted against, with two members voting present. Here's footage of how that vote went down. On this vote, the yeas are 311, the nays are 114 with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted. 
and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. Santos is the first member of Congress to get kicked out since 2002 when Democrat James Traficant of Ohio was expelled over bribery charges. Here to join us to discuss how we got here and what happens next is Matthew Foldy, political reporter over at The Spectator, my colleague. Great to have you, Foldy, or Matthew, rather, I hey. have to call you now. <laughs> right. Well, hey, it's always great to be with you, Amber. Absolutely. So you were actually at the press conference, I believe, yesterday with now former Congressman George Santos, and he was pretty defiant, although privately it seemed like he uh, he was being honest about the fact that he did believe the votes were there to expel him from Congress. Tell us a little bit about that press conference. So, look, this was the third attempt to expel him, and in this case, the third time seemed to have been the charm. And the difference here was that uh, in previous efforts to expel George Santos, there had not been this long-awaited-for ethics report. But now the ethics report came out. You know, you've seen it. I've seen it. We've covered it at The Spectator about how Santos's campaign is alleged to have spent money on everything from OnlyFans, uh, which he sort of denies somewhat. He says, I only found out what OnlyFans was earlier this year, so that was a little bit strange to Botox. And he said, look, it's no secret that... Uh, I use Botox. Uh, now that report has been out. A lot of Republicans and Democrats had been withholding judgments on voting to expel him. But for a lot of people, this proved to be the final straw. At yesterday's press conference, we did see a very defiant, somewhat fiery, somewhat funny Santos. And then later in the day, uh, he was chatting with some reporters and he seemed to me to be sort of resigned to the fact that um, this was the end uh, for him, at least for right now. He said, look, today, as in yesterday, is my wedding anniversary, uh, quite a memorable day. Uh, I'm going to go have dinner with my husband. We're going to go, I guess, travel this weekend. But look, I'm only 35. Uh, this isn't the end of George Santos. He talked about how uh, he's been turning down reality TV shows. He said uh, he, as of yesterday, was not interested in doing Dancing with the Stars. But hey, maybe that's an option now. It worked a little bit for Sean Spicer. Uh, he said he's probably going to write a book. So I don't expect this to be the last that we'll hear from George Santos. One thing he didn't really do was address the ethics report sort of uh, up front. He said, look, today is not the day. I will address that line by line. There's no indication of when that is. But now that he's no longer in Congress, he'll have a lot more free time. As for what comes next, uh, as you heard uh, Speaker Mike Johnson say, New York has to schedule a special election in the coming months. I think that there is, you know, Democrats want this seat. Uh, that's one of the reasons they want Santos gone. Uh, so there's going to be all hands on deck, I think, probably from both parties. But remember, the Democrats are right now trying to jettison New York's congressional map to try and basically win the House majority just with New York alone. If they win this special election. There's no guarantee that the House district uh, that they would theoretically flip early next year is even going to be an existing district going into next November. So there's a lot of chaos, uh, unsurprisingly, in the next iteration of the George Santos saga. Yeah, definitely. And that Long Island seat is currently rated as a toss-up, um, according to most pollsters. So we'll definitely be eyeing that special election very closely. Now, the majority of Republicans did vote against the measure to expel Santos, including all of the House Republican leadership. It seems like they've had a couple of explanations for that, one of which being exactly what you mentioned, which is that 
the Democrats are probably supporting this measure simply because it helps them get closer to obtaining a House majority. And then others cited the potential precedent that this would set, expelling a member for things that they are merely charged with and not convicted of. They pointed out that Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, is accused of a massive bribery scam. So uh, what do you think that they have a point, maybe, uh, that this was maybe premature? They should have perhaps waited for the trial to, to play out? So I asked uh, Santos about the Menendez aspect yesterday, and he said that uh, uh, the first iteration of the charges against Menendez, right, which, remember, did not result in a conviction, are uh, a good example of a member of Congress sitting, fighting the charges against him, and waiting it out. Now, this time, things are somewhat different for uh, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, where a lot of Democrats, led uh, by John Fetterman, actually, have been demanding that he resign. However, you're not seeing the organized push. Remember, the vote to expel George Santos was actually introduced by one of his New York, now former Republican colleagues. You're not seeing an effort to actually expel uh, Bob Menendez from the Senate, but he pointed to that as one of the reasons why people should not necessarily rush um, to vote to expel him. He said, look, if we're expelling people just for charges being brought against them, that is a very dangerous road to go down. I think that's one of the, other than the raw political calculations of you know, losing a seat in an already very fragile Republican majority, I think that's one of the reasons that at least some of the people, I mean, two Democrats voted against uh, expelling George Santos. I think of this whole thing as far as precedent setting. It reminds me of when Harry Reid blew up the filibuster and uh, Mitch McConnell said, look, you're going to regret this because we're going to do the exact same thing when you don't like it. I don't, I mean, look, we're seeing impeachment basically be used against whoever the president is. The next president will probably also have impeachment charges brought against them, whoever, whatever their political party is. Is this going to be the end of trying to expel members of Congress? I don't believe so. And the reason I say that is because one of the last things George Santos did while in office was introduce a resolution to expel Jamal Bowman. Now, it feels like five years ago, remember, Jamal Bowman, of course, pulled the fire alarm to disrupt the proceedings of Congress, not because he's stupid, but because he's a criminal. And Santos, uh, his measure, it will actually sort of leave office with him. But he told us yesterday that someone else will uh, promise him to uh, that they will carry on his torch of trying to expel Jamal Bowman. Now, the crazy thing to me is that a lot of Republicans voted to expel Santos but I don't think that there's really any appetite to expel Jamal Bowman, even though as far as using their position for ill-gotten gains, right, like Bob Menendez, the charges are levied against him because of what he did while in office. The charges against Jamal Bowman, which he pled guilty to, are levied against him for not pulling the fire alarm while he's a middle school principal, but for pulling the fire alarm while he's a member of Congress to disrupt the proceedings of the House of Representatives. No one really is expecting Jamal Bowman to be uh, expelled but we'll see what happens, I guess. Maybe everyone's going to get expelled at this point. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because Santos's alleged crimes did occur while he was running for office, not a member of Congress. But that being said, the New York uh, uh, colleague you were referring to, I believe, is Max Miller. He just sent an email to his GOP colleagues indicating that he was actually a personal victim of George Santos's alleged fraud, stating that he and his mother's credit card was charged for amounts uh, above FEC limits in donations to George Santos's campaign that 
they did not authorize. Um, so do you think that Max Miller's sort of personal involvement in this maybe helped him corral some of his Republican colleagues into voting against Santos and, and trying to expel him? So there were, there were two things going on. The New York colleague uh, who introduced this particular resolution was Anthony D'Esposito. Max Miller, almost from, he's from, he's from Ohio. Uh, he, he said that he sent this email this morning, exactly right. Uh, based on my reading of the email, it was unclear to me if uh, those charges were during probably the 2022 campaign or after Santos won. Obviously, look, if what Max Miller is saying is true, that's horrible. No one is really saying that George Santos did nothing wrong in the run-up to his campaign. His response to that is, look, guys, I trusted a lot of the wrong people over the course of my campaign. I basically had no idea what was going on on my campaign. Having run for office myself, I know it's very important that you pick a good team that you can trust with your reputation. Uh, and then he was asked uh, if he was referring specifically to his treasurer, Nancy Marks, and he said, look, I'm not going to, to name names right now. But Max Miller and yesterday on the floor had a very heated exchange. I think that Max Miller, remember, he's a Jewish Republican. Uh, he's actually Jewish. And uh, so he was one of the first people actually on the Republican side to demand that Santos uh, be kicked out of Congress. I think the two of them have had this sort of uh, back and forth relationship for a very long time. And I bet that it's not like Max Miller is sending that email out to his colleagues uh, in order to argue against expelling George Santos, right? It was actually interesting in light of how decisive the vote was to expel George Santos, there was a moment earlier today when all of House Republican leadership said that they're voting against expelling him, that the tide seemed to be uh, sort of switching in Santos's favor. But that was about for about 10 minutes. And then um, there were about 20 votes to spare in the, as you said, incredibly historic uh, vote to kick out a sitting member of Congress. I mean, the people he's in the company with, like the, the crook from Ohio you're talking about. I mean, we're talking about former Confederate soldiers, Jim Traficant, uh, one of whose worst crimes was his hairdo. And now George <laughs> Sanders. This is a very small group of people in American history. Yeah. I think one of the things complimenting George or con uh, adding issue to George Santos's defense here. Um, is that he was reportedly warned about the contents of the vulnerability study that was done by his team as he was running for office and was even warned at one point that some of the issues contained therein could land him in prison. So we'll see how well that holds up his uh, idea of trying to blame his team members. But we're out of time. Matthew Foldy, political reporter for The Spectator, thank you so much for joining us and helping us break this down. Always a pleasure to be The Twitter files are back as authors Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi made their triumphant return to Capitol Hill during a hearing that discussed the extent of social media censorship at the hands of government. The pair condemned the actions of companies like Twitter, who used their vast reach to censor content like the Hunter Biden laptop story that was true, but they didn't like during the 2020 election. Watch. Oh, yeah. Well, then the Aspen Institute, this was the weirdest thing. We discovered that Aspen Institute had created a workshop that it was attended by basically all of the major media, including, as well as all the major social media platforms, to basically pre-bunk in advance the Hunter Biden laptop, even though it had not been, there was no evidence that, 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 it, that, that it existed outside of the fact that the FBI knew that it, they had it because they got it in December 2019. So to have the Aspen Institute trying to persuade people not to cover the Hunter Biden laptop story 
in August and September of, of uh, 2020 was quite uh, chilling and disturbing to see. Kaibi noted that the people doing the censorship were not members of the working class, but instead unaccountable elites that seemed hellbent on telling average Americans what to do. If one small demographic over here has broad control over the whole speech landscape and a great big one over there has no control whatsoever, it follows that one of those groups will end up with more political power than the other. Which one is the, is the winner? Paraphrase, Ira Glasser, it probably ain't yours. It isn't just one side or the other that will lose if these programs are allowed to continue. It's pretty much everyone, which is why these programs must be defunded before it's too late. Congressional Democrats used their time to attack Taibbi and Schellenberger. One notable moment came when New York Congressman Dan Goldman asserted that the Hunter Biden laptop story was a lie and that former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani could have been involved. You have no idea. You know you hard drives can that be it's a manipulated. Are you suggesting the New York Post participated in a conspiracy to construct the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop? No, sir. The problem is that hard drives can be manipulated by Rudy Giuliani or Russia. Well, what's the evidence that and that happened? What's well, there the is actual evidence of it, but the point is it's There's not no the same evidence thing. Well, so you're engaging in a conspiracy. I'm glad theory. you. I mean, let's start with the obvious. There was no evidence that there was ever any manipulation of the Hunter Biden hard drive, as was published by the New York Post. And yet we saw that these big tech companies from Twitter to Facebook took the New York Post off of the platform for a period of time and banned any discussion of the story. You weren't allowed to share links from it. And that was encouraged by the Biden administration, which helped coordinate this signed letter from former intelligence officers claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop had all the marks of disinformation. And so it's really troubling that these Democrats on this committee continue to attack the messengers of Schellenberger and Taibbi for merely reporting on the internal Twitter documents that show the coordination between government and big tech companies to censor the speech of Americans rather than taking these threats to the First Amendment seriously, Jessica. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how long of a practice has been and how much focus it's gotten since the Twitter files have come out. It's been pretty much standard procedure that if something is deemed a national security risk, it's taken down from not just online platforms, but from media in general. This has been a very long practice and a relationship that private corporations have had for the government for, for a very long time. You can ask folks working in the State Department, they don't even bat an eye when you talk about something like this. And so the Twitter files giving it all of this attention begs the question, would people be just as outraged if they found out the collusion that was going on between you know, the CIA and the New York Times, whether there was a deliberate conversation to be had between editors or authors at the Times, and the CIA is beside the point. It's very obvious that during the time of the 70s and the 80s, a lot of the foreign affairs reporting really complemented CIA policy. And so to me, the tying together of the state and media is much bigger than just social media. We give a lot of focus to social media, but corporations really buy and sell a lot of what has been said on cable news and mainstream media. And so the problem is much bigger than just this. But what's fascinating about this hearing is seeing it get derailed. And now we're talking about the Hunter Biden laptop instead of just the Twitter files, because Members of both sides are just so craven to protect their party identity and their party beliefs, even if it has absolutely nothing to do with the issue at hand.
I would challenge the notion that the laptop doesn't have anything to do with the issue at hand, though, because it was a sort of perfect example of the type of censorship that was engaged in by Twitter and by Facebook in the run-up to the 2020 election. Of course, it wasn't the only example. Um, they also, of course, in the Twitter files, talk about the censorship of information related to COVID-19 that was deemed conspiratorial when it ended up being true. For example, the idea that the vaccine wouldn't prevent you from getting or spreading the virus, or the idea that social distancing, the, the whole five feet or, or six feet rule was totally arbitrary. There were tons of women sharing their stories of adverse effects on their fertility by the vaccine. They were told that they were crazy, and Twitter took those stories down only to find out a few months later from reporting from places like the New York Times and the Washington Post that there were effects on women's menstrual cycles and fertility from the vaccine. And the Biden administration, um, it was ruled by a federal appeals court recently that they had overstepped on the First Amendment by coordinating with social media companies to censor that information. And I know from it's true that this happens on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, there were social media accounts in the run-up to the 2016 election that were deemed bots because they were supporting Bernie, and you had Hillary Clinton calling for those people to be censored. So it's not exclusive to any one party or any one political persuasion, but the Twitter files make clear that the real problem here is that when government gets involved in this situation where they are actively making decisions about what is misinformation or disinformation or what violates a private company's terms of service, that that becomes a First Amendment issue. Yeah, I think the Schellenberger and members of Congress debating whether or not Rudy Giuliani, the New York Times or others tampered with a hard drive. Clearly, there's no evidence of that. That back and forth, if you're a lawmaker, none of that is pertinent to you passing legislation regarding censorship whatsoever. I just felt that to be entirely unnecessary um, in this hearing. But what I really appreciate is that you have members of Congress approaching this from the perspective of, okay, these are private corporations. How different, and I don't know if they had this deliberate thought in their line of questioning or not, it's a definitely a thought that I have, how deliberate would it be for you know someone in another business to, to talk to Twitter and say, you know what, I advertise on Twitter. And I have a lot of concerns about the, the speech that's happening. It would be in Twitter's rights as a private business to say, you know what, we're adjusting our terms and conditions. We're actually changing uh, how we do things and we're not going to allow content like this on the app because it's not safe for business for Twitter because it's upsetting their advertisers. Similarly, the federal government can reach out to a private corporation without requiring them by law to do anything and say, hey, this is what we're observing. We just wanted to share this information uh, with you. You know, we're worried about misinformation with the vaccine. Here's the info we have but you're a private company, make your own decision. And then they go on to make the decision to center, censure. Is that really the federal government controlling a corporation and infringing on free speech? And that's the territory really that we're in. A big question I have, you mentioned the Bernie campaign. Matt Taibbi was a Bernie supporter. A lot of leftists have the question, why were the Twitter files not keyword searched for anything regarding the Bernie campaign, Bernie, Bernie bros, Bernie, not me, us, anything to do with Bernie. They didn't feel the need to assess the degree of lefty censorship on Twitter, which honestly just makes me question Matt Taibbi's and Schellenberger's intentions with the Twitter files. 
Yeah, I wish they would do that. And if they still have access to it, they definitely should. I would say that the problem with the government getting involved in these situations in terms of determining what violates terms of service is that there's an inherent threat when the government is going to a private corporation and asking them to make decisions like that in regards to speech, especially when we have a situation now where these tech companies are routinely brought in for depositions, for public testimony, for public hearings, and there's always that looming threat of tighter regulation if they don't abide by the government's terms. And your point about advertising is well taken because there it currently is a situation where media companies have been manipulating algorithms at Twitter to get certain results, then publishing articles claiming that Twitter is a hotbed of anti-Semitism and that ads from places like Apple and IBM are showing up to not, next to Nazi content, and corporations are pulling their ads as a result. Um, so Elon Musk, in response to this just uh, the other day, said that he wasn't going to be bullied by advertisers. He wasn't going to allow that money to affect his, his, his business decisions and told them to go F themselves. But there is always, of course, the potential threat of businesses operating based on what best affects their bottom line and changing their terms of service thereof. And one of the, uh, the policy proposals that some Republicans like Josh Hawley have suggested in response to that um, in previous years where it seemed like Twitter was making decisions based on advertiser dollars was to treat them more like publishers, to treat them more like a media outlet as a recognition that they are very much the public square now and they need to be treating different political speech equally as opposed to making decisions based on whether or not they agree with the content and not just because the content uh, um, violates some sort of term of service um, in regards to what they find objectionable. I think it's really clear that these social media apps do occupy the space of a public square. And I, it's partially because the public square has been replaced by strip malls and high-rise office buildings. But it's also because a lot of people are getting information online and are communicating online. And so, of course, people want a place for free discourse, free discussion. And currently, the, it, there really isn't a place for that when everything's privately owned. The alternative being, you know, an app owned by the government. I don't think people feel very good about that either. And and striking a deal of something in between is something that it seems that big tech and the government are not on the same page about. That like they agree that like maybe this relationship is best, where we secretly share memos back and forth and ask you to censor things and uh, and so on. And then they go on and give these, you know, hearings on the floor of Congress and members of Congress pretend like they have no idea how social media apps work, whether they're pretending or they really don't know. I'm not sure which is worse, but it's very obvious that there's no steps forward in regulation of censorship, if that can be a thing. There's no steps forward in ensuring that a private corporation fosters an environment for free speech. Is that something we can have in a free market capitalist society? It's a huge question, but it seems that even the lawmaker makers tasked with it are not asking it, but it seems that this is what the people want. Even people who really loyally support living in a free market capitalist society, they want a place that's the public square, which does mean that the corporate goal of having a safe place for advertisers is not the ultimate goal, that free speech would have to be the ultimate goal. Can we incentivize a corporation to do that in the economy we have? I think that's the main question here. And it's one that it seems that lawmakers are not asking. 
great point. We'll be back with more Rising after this. UFO world is ablaze right now. What some are calling the UFO caucus held a press conference yesterday. Let's take a look. Unelected bureaucrats do not get to say what we can and cannot see. We've had three-star generals tell us that we did not have authorized access to this information. But yet, how do you expect us to continue to send taxpayer money to fund government projects if you're not even allowing us to see what those projects are? And I say that because, as some of you know, we have been consistently hearing that we do ha not have the authorized clearances, again, by people not elected to office. Let me repeat this, the people's representatives, members of Congress who sit on judiciary, armed services, and the oversight committees are being denied access to this information. But if we do not have the clearance, who does? Does this sound like a truly free country? This comes as more information on what exactly the government is hiding from the American public on the subject. Let's watch journalist Ross Coldhart on with News Nation's Chris Cuomo last night. Yes. Government agencies, at least including the CIA, have specific programs and manpower to deal with things that are in the air that they can't identify, want collected and studied. Absolutely, Chris. Firstly, good evening and good day, Tim. I, what I can tell you is the Office of Global Access is the office in the CIA that has been coordinating this. They have been doing crash retrievals for many years. Um, one of the things that I do take issue with in the Daily Mail story today is that they say there's just nine craft that been, have been recovered. My understanding is that there are considerably more. And uh, as the article accurately reports, this is done in collaboration with JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, notably with special forces drawn primarily from the US Air Force. So yes, the article is accurate, and I've got it also confirmed independently by multiple senior intelligence sources. What's more is that there are two competing pieces of legislation on the docket concerning UAPs. Here to discuss is Hill opinion contributor, Mark von Redenkamp. Welcome. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about what these proposals on Capitol Hill are as they relate to UAPs? Absolutely, and, and guys, thanks for having me on. Um, the bottom line is that these two pieces of legislation, we have the, the Senator Schumer's UAP Disclosure Act and then uh, legislation from Congressman Burchett. And the bottom line, and I'll make it very simple, is transparency, and it is to release government records. Um, and we can get into the kind of the nitty gritty, but Senator Schumer, remarkable, it's extraordinary. It is 64 and breadth. Um, uh, Congressman Burchett's legislation, on the other hand, is very narrowly focused, and it's got several carve-outs that I suspect a government that wants to hide things can um, can exploit, and it can use those loopholes to get away with keeping um, many, many more documents and records under wraps. What do you make of what was said in that press conference there? It's a criticism that we've had on this show for a while now, but it's that People in the Pentagon, people in the Department of Defense have the purview to decide what information is released, having never been elected to public office. And they're telling elected officials 
what can and cannot be released. But it sounds like they do have some friends in Congress, per your recent reporting, some key Republicans wanting to tide some of this, have some lack of transparency around the UFO UAP issue. But just what's your reaction to that sentiment about the divide between, you know, these security establishment people and elected officials? Jessica, you're, you're really getting to the root of the issue here. And, and all six of those members of Congress, and I applaud every single one of them, that bipartisan group that was up there yesterday, uh, hit exactly on that point, right? And that is the, the notion that unelected bureaucrats, I think as Congresswoman Luna said, um, have the authority to dictate what the American people and the, the elected representatives of the American people can and cannot see. And what you saw yesterday, in this conference was anybody who watches it, you'll see all six of those uh, members of Congress expressed extraordinary frustration, just absolute frustration with the obstruction, the, the stonewalling um, and the obfuscation that they're seeing um, and encountering on the Hill. And I think um, Congressman Mo Moskowitz basically said, I don't really care if it's aliens or not. What I, what's really piquing my interest, I think that's exactly what he said is, um, is the fact that uh, this is being obstructed. What, what, that is really what's driving some of their interest. Um, so again, you hit the nail on the head. That is, that is really the core of the issue here. Yeah, to your point, Mark, I mean, for them to be so tight-lipped about what classified information they have would suggest to the average observer that they do have something to hide. Otherwise, why not allow these lawmakers to at least see the information even if they're not necessarily allowed to release it to the public. I mean, my understanding is that they haven't even been able to necessarily go into a skiff and, and see the materials themselves. Amber, you're, you're spot on again. You guys are, um, I'm glad you guys are, are so sharp on this. So absolutely. And, and I think the, the kind of the, um, the refrain that we heard and keep hearing and what I've been kind of saying is if there's nothing to see here, why the hell is it so so deeply, deeply classified and why is there so much obstruction? And I, I just want to quickly point to um, the government's own UFO report came out last month in October. Pardon me, that was uh, two months ago now. And um, it said it said very specifically that there are some some objects out there that have concerning indicators such as high speed and, and unconventional performance but they're not ours, we've deconflicted them with our programs. They're explicitly saying they're not ours. They also say that none of the most recent reports have any connection to a foreign adversary, none. That's, that's they, you can look that up. So, so if they're not foreign and they're not our own secret tech, why is this so deeply classified? And the sources and methods excuse that they all frequently put out is nonsense, right? If a fighter, if a Chinese fighter jet flies within a hundred feet and conducts an, an unsafe maneuver in front of one of our airplanes, that uh, footage is declassified and released like that. But for, for whatever reason, when it comes to the UFO uh, videos and data, that stuff never sees the light of day. Why is that? Why? That's the question. Let's talk about the two things that need to happen for some of these records to be released. You wrote about this first. There would need to be the, the records review board with top security clearance assessing the information. And this review board is composed of, quote, distinguished persons of high national professional reputation. Not sure what that means or how they pick them. But then secondly, the president would also need to sign off on the release. What do you know, if anything, about who decides who is on this review board and who they might be? So um, 
Great question. Um, I, I hope I'm not betraying any confidence here, but I was uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually in a room with um, an individual who wrote that legislation. I right? had a very significant um, amount of input into that legislation. And according to this individual, um, the, the folks, the people that would be on this review board um, would be serious individuals. We're talking about Nobel level econ economists, uh, former perhaps secretaries of defense, right? People who, who we know and, and have not had any nexus to these supposed crash retrieval and reverse engineering efforts, but are, are of extremely high stature. Um, and that was the intent, again, from an individual who, who had uh, either wrote the legislation himself or, or had um, a significant amount of input with Senate staffers on writing it. All right, Mark Vaughn, Running Camp, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back soon to give us an update on whether or not the government has decided to give us a little more transparency. Thanks again. Thanks so much, guys. Tucker Carlson has made his endorsement, and probably not much to your surprise, it's Donald Trump. Let's take a listen. I certainly support Trump, I'll tell you that. And I can tell you, I mean, I've always agreed with Trump's policies, always. And I lost friends over it. Um, but, and I've never really actively supported anybody because it's not my job to actively support people. I right. watch, you know, right. I like to watch. Um, but I'm a voyeur. <laughs> yeah. But I became an active Trump supporter when they raided Mar-a-Lago last summer, the summer of 2022. That, that, that's just, that can't stand. No, that can't. And that I agree with Trump on a lot. But even if I disagreed with Trump on a lot, I'd still be a Trump supporter because you cannot allow that. You cannot allow the, you know, the regime, the president of the United States to use the Justice Department to knock the front runner out of the race. You can't do that. No, you can't do that. So it's bigger than Trump. It's bigger than Biden. It's a question of, you know, do you want to live in a free country with a functioning justice system? You know, that's exactly. And right. so I'm voting for Trump. And if they convict him, I will send him the max donations and I will lead protests. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. Because, too. and by the way, if I thought that he had committed some real crime, I wouldn't feel that way, but he didn't. He and Biden are both found with classified documents at home along with every other former high-level federal official in history, but only Trump is indicted. Like, tell me how that works. Oh, shut up. So there you have it. I, not a surprise to me, Jessica, probably not to you either. But I think what he's getting at in terms of this raid at Mar-a-Lago is this idea that a lot of people have about Trump, which is that sometimes the attacks on him seem so unfair or so politicized that it makes people want to support him more. Kind of reminds me of a lot of rea the reaction from a lot of conservatives during the Kavanaugh hearings, where they felt that this man was being unfairly attacked, unfairly maligned without proper evidence to support the sexual assault accusation, and that it was a basically a political show trial meant to try to keep him off of the Supreme Court. A lot of people that I know in the conservative movement kind of describe that as sort of a radicalizing moment from them. And I think Tucker is sort of alluding to the same kind of idea here with the raid at Mar-a-Lago. I think it is a surprise for me, actually, Amber, because Tucker Carlson's text messages, he spoke about not being able to wait till they weren't covering Trump every night. And didn't he say, I hate him passionately in a text message? So for me, I'm kind of squaring, can that also be true? And he be Tucker Carlson's favorite candidate. Can you actually hate the candidate that you endorse and will donate the maximum amount of money to? That's what I'm trying to square in my mind. Does Tucker Carlson genuinely hate Donald Trump and also want him to be president? 
I think he was kind of expressing this sort of, I guess, popular sentiment among media professionals that it can be frustrating when the entire news cycle is repeatedly about Trump and people get really tired of that. And that was a sort of common sentiment, I think, ahead of the 2020 election, too, is that a lot of people really had Trump fatigue. It's one of the reasons why we saw suburban uh, voters move away from Trump ahead of that election and go for Joe Biden, because Joe sort of presented himself as this return to normalcy candidate, that things were going to be quieter and less crazy. And so I definitely don't think that it's mutually exclusive, that you can find yourself annoyed with Trump or frustrated with Trump. And knowing Tucker's textile, for him to say he passionately hates him is not a surprise to me either. But also support the man's policies and think that the attacks on him are perhaps evidence that he could be another effective, uh, effective leader again for a second term. Yeah, I don't know. If someone that I enjoyed the policies of or liked as a candidate, like like Bernie Sanders was on the news every night and I always had to talk about him and cover him. And I was annoyed with talking about him all of the time. I don't know if I would say I hate him passionately, but this was, of course, January 4th, 2021. It was when there was a lot of discussion of election fraud in the GOP. And now we have some new reporting. I think if the GOP is so concerned with election fraud, they should maybe look in the mirror in Arizona Cochise County Supervisors Peggy Judd and Terry Crosby were indicted by a state grand jury on charges of interfering with an election officer and conspiracy. The pair of Republicans allegedly conspired to delay a vote to formally accept their communities or their county's votes during a time period required by state law. The indictment could have major consequences for 2024 uh, in this election cycle where we have a presidential race. As the Washington Post reports, the indictments uh, mark a rare example of possible criminal consequences in the battleground of Arizona. County officials, state lawmakers, and GOP candidates have continued to try to delegitimize election outcomes and procedures, and public officials are deeply concerned about any potential efforts to delay or derail the outcome of the 2024 presidential election. So I wonder, you know, if Trump changes his tune and goes back to some of the rhetoric on the 4th of January in 2021, would Tucker Carlson change his mind then? Was he really sick of reporting on Donald Trump? Does he hate the election fraud stuff? I'm not sure what this means for the GOP going into 2024. I can't imagine it radicalizing some of them. Yeah, I think you just have to know how Tucker talks to understand the passionately hate comment. Um, it's sort of a type of throwaway line he would say about a lot of people and maybe either change his mind or not really mean it and kind of be exaggerating. But um, this Arizona case is interesting. I mean, obviously, if these people actually committed fraud, they should face the full consequences. I wish that we crack down on voter fraud more aggressively than we do. As noted in this report, it's pretty rare that people will face criminal consequences for any type of fraud. Um, this one seems pretty severe if they tried to actually um, delay the results of the midterm elections. And I think what I've always said and what a lot of Republicans have always said is that if you're going to go after election results or try to challenge the results or ask for a recount, it needs to be done through the proper legal channels. You need to file the appropriate lawsuits. You need to ask for the appropriate audit audits, the appropriate recounts. And trying to do it in a way that is unlawful is obviously not acceptable and not the proper way to do that. Um, that being said, I will say, I mean, it does obviously challenge the idea 
that voter fraud doesn't exist, even if it wasn't necessarily on the side that conservatives or Republicans have been claiming that it always is. Um, I also take issue with the idea in the, the reading that, um, that it's—I think it said Republicans have been trying to derail election outcomes or challenge election outcomes. I mean, we know previously that Hillary Clinton still to this day says that she lost the 2016 election because of Russian collusion or Russian disinformation, despite the fact that there's no evidence that anything to do with Russia changed any votes in the election, and that the amount of interference, as she puts it, on Facebook was relatively minimal compared to the overarching amount of political ads and content that were on Facebook at the time. You have Stacey Abrams, who for a long time refused to concede the Georgia gubernatorial election, despite having no evidence that fraud occurred there. So I don't think that this is a partisan issue by any means. Right. Yeah. You have people, you know, spreading conspiracy theories. That's what I would call it, what Hillary Clinton has done about election interference, right? Spreading misinformation, manipulating voters' opinions before they get to the polls. But then I think there's this whole other side of the electoral process in the United States where you have lines that are four hours long in Miami-Dade County, where you have a surplus of uh, polling locations in cities where there's majority white populations and really a deficit in cities where there's majority black populations, that access to just being able to cast the ballot is a, a hugely important thing for an election cycle. So because we live in the kind of legal environment where we can't prosecute crimes before they happen, it's not the obligation of our police, as the Supreme Court has ruled, to have a suspicion of a crime being committed in the future and try and prevent it. They don't have a, a duty. Uh, to prosecute crimes of that nature. And so if they were to do this in advance of the election, if they saw, you know, some fringe online chat rooms trying to collude around, you know, minimizing votes, attacking certain polling locations, what have you, uh, instead what we're going to need to do is improve our process of obtaining ballots, of voting, of allowing people to register to vote, of ensuring that there is integrity of elections, meaning that everyone who wants to cast a ballot actually gets to cast one. This should be the main concern of anyone that's genuinely worried about election fraud or election interference. We need to be on, you know, the best defense is a good offense. Let's improve our process of having elections. It seems that there's not many people talking about this. Um, and I, I think it's what everyone should be talking about, Hillary Clinton included. She has no business still talking about Russia in 2016. Absolutely. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. More rising after this. We have some new findings on what was behind Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. According to the New York Times, Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails, and interviews show that, according to the Times report. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to actually carry out. The 40-page document, codenamed by Israeli authorities as Jericho Wall, outlined point by point the kind of invasion that actually took place on October 7th. This translated document reviewed by the New York Times did not set a date for the attack, but describes, quote, methodol sorry, meth methodical assault designed to overwhelm fortifications around the Gaza Strip take over Israeli cities and storm key military bases, including a division headquarters. This is according to New York Times reporting. 
Israel has renewed its attack on Gaza early today after the week-long ceasefire with Hamas ended. Now, I remember directly after October 7th, it was Charlie Kirk I saw trying to assess what could have happened because Israel has a huge military, the support of the United States, uh, extremely advanced military technology. And he was questioning what could have possibly happened here? Could this really have been a breakdown of Israeli intelligence? And the video was taken down because it was deemed conspiratorial from a lot of social media websites. And to me, that just seems like assessing strategic military decision-making by Israel that should not have been censored, especially in the United States. So I don't know what, what happened here now with this release that they had the full plan. It seems to me that if I was Benjamin Netanyahu, which I don't even want to put myself in the shoes, what I know about Benjamin Netanyahu tells me that if there was a plan uh, around, you know, attacking Israel by Hamas, and you obtained it, and you're able to surveil what is going on at the exact locations they planned on targeting, and there's some unrest in the country, people don't exactly support you, and really what Netanyahu wants to do is is increase the land that Israel controls and push Palestinians out. This is very deliberately the plan of the Netanyahu government. You could get some kind of moral permission by allowing this attack to happen. We're also uncertain how many people killed on that day were killed because there were Israeli helicopters present. They said that 200 people were burned so badly that they thought initially they were Israelis and they found out later that it was Hamas. So who burned these people so badly? It's very obvious that reports show the IDF was present that day and this attack was not just a decision made by Hamas. We could look back and remember Israel funding Hamas, but I think even more precisely, the planned attack seems to be something that Netanyahu didn't safeguard the Israeli people against, maybe intentionally. I remember that exact Charlie Kirk post that you're talking about, and I remember specifically as well that there was a lot of backlash from the Republican Party, um, or I would say the Republican establishment more accurately, at members of the new right or the populist right for questioning how this was able to slip through Israeli defense mechanisms and Israeli intelligence. And those people were all called conspiracy theorists. And I don't think asking the question of how they missed this necessarily implies that, they're, that they did it intentionally, that they intentionally um, didn't, you know, catch the attack or intentionally ignored the attack. And so there was really no justification, I think, for taking down Charlie's post or other posts related to this question, which now turns out to be perhaps more justified because of this report indicating that they had the intelligence a year ago. Now, I think there's a legitimate um, maybe justification or defense for Israel in just to play devil's advocate in that perhaps they truly believed that Hamas was physically incapable of possessing the ability to carry out this attack. I mean, I, for one, I'm not an intelligence official. I'm not an intelligence expert. But if I heard that a sort of more ragtag terrorist group compared to the capabilities of my country was planning on paragliding in to get around the Iron Dome or below the Iron Dome, I would probably find that pretty fantastical too. However, 
That being said, if there was any potential legitimacy to this attack and they had the attack plans, then Israeli military defense certainly had a responsibility, I think, to take it as seriously as they possibly could. And absolutely, Netanyahu has to answer for how this was able to happen, how 1,400 Israelis were able to be killed by Hamas in this attack um, without them acting on this intel. Yeah, I think the entire international community responding to this is creating a, a new kind of global division. You have uh, President Xi and China taking Israel off of their map, Bolivia removing the Israeli uh, embassy from the country, many other countries joining them in removing Israel uh, as named Israel from their map. And I think, you know, this kind of reshuffling internationally is going to intensify as we get more intelligence like this about how exactly things went down, what the motivations were by Israel. It seems that the more information we get about the Israeli government, the, the more damning it is, to be entirely honest. We had that leaked document come out of the plan to push Gazans, 2.3 million of them, into Egypt. They said this was just a plan, it wasn't set in motion, but today we have 1.7 million Gazans displaced. It seems that despite never setting the plan in motion, it's nearly done. And so there are a lot of things that Israel has documented as their intended plan or purpose. When you match that up with their actions, and it seems, yeah, you are executing that plan that you said was simply a suggestion. It's really not good for the international community because they're trying to sell this narrative that they're just responding to a terrorist attack rather than executing a very long policy that Netanyahu has had of, of taking more land from Palestine, of displacing more Palestinian people. And so the international community responding to this is concerning as an American with an administration that has vowed their support to Israel. That's a security concern for, I think, every American. I'm curious how this new report would potentially affect a ceasefire or a potential for wrapping up of this current conflict, um, because we know that the previous ceasefire just recently expired after the release of hostages and prisoners on both sides. And during that ceasefire, there were several incidents where the IDF was accused of killing released prisoners or hostages for celebrating their release. And then um, concurrently, Hamas gunned down several Israelis across the border as well, both seemingly violating the terms, although Israel claims that they had this no celebration clause in the ceasefire. Um, so I, I, I'm curious to see what this means going forward in terms of potentially ending the current conflict and the current violence that's taking place. Unfortunately, that's going to wrap it up for us on Rising. We're out of time, but stay tuned because The Hill will be covering the George Santos vote, which is slated to happen at any minute. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Jessica, I'll see you next Friday. Bye, Amber. Bye, y'all.